You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right, well, if you have your Bible with you, feel free to open to Mark 1, where we're going to be today, or uh, pull the sermon outline out if that helps you follow along, or pull it up on your phone if you have better self-discipline than I do. Well, yesterday I uh, went to Costco on a Saturday in December like a fool. Um, and I, <laughs> I love Costco. I think most of the clothes I'm wearing are from Costco. Uh, most of the food in my house is from Costco. Most of my money goes to Costco. I, you know, this is not me ripping on Costco. But if, you, if you're a Costco person, I think it applies to Sam Club as well, but they're dead to me. Um, if you go to Costco... Costco has a very vested interest in exciting your desires and loves in order to get you to give them as much money as possible. And think about this. Think about going through the store with me. You walk into Costco. First, you show your membership card to show that you are belonging and important, right? And then the first thing you see is giant televisions. The reason those giant televisions are there is to reset your frame of how much money you're going to spend, right? To show you, no, they've said this, to show you that $2,000 is a normal amount of money to spend when you're here today, so the $400 you spend on chicken is no big deal. Um, and, and, uh, and excite the desire, I, I've never thought there was a problem with my television until I see how much bigger and shinier these are. And then I go to the next part of the store, which is always things that are new, that I didn't know existed, that I didn't know I needed. Until now, there's a humidifier, dehumidifier in one. And I, I could have that. And then I get, I, I, if I have willpower and I get past those things, I get to uh, the back of the store, where the stuff is that you, you actually came for. Um, and I put a chicken and some bananas and some bread in my cart. And then there's someone giving out free samples, not because they care about me, but because they want to raise my appetite to have lobster ravioli and tamales, and I'm making you hungry. And, and that's what they're doing to you when you're there. And if by some happy accident, I get to the front of the store with a cart of only things that I need and not just things that they've told me I want, I have three little other lovers with me who found things that they know that they want now and they need, and they have tossed into the cart with an amount of ninja-like speed that I've never seen before. <laughs> so why, why am I talking about Costco at church? Um, because Costco is in the business of exciting your wants and desires. Because your wants, desires, and loves are excitable and able to be manipulated. Now, James K. Smith, in his wonderful book, You Are What You Love, says that it's not just malls and Costco and consumerism where this happens. It happens every time you go to worship in a church. It happens every time uh, you turn on the internet and you go on social media. It happens every hour of every day of your life. Your loves are being shaped either towards God or towards things apart from God. Your loves and my loves are always in the process of being shaped. And who you and I are as people is essentially what we love. This is going to come up in our passage today as we're going to see what is it that Jesus loves and how are Jesus' loves significant? How do they shape his person and his work? And how are they shaped themselves by the Father's love for him? As we look at Jesus' loves, we're going to ask an important subsidiary question, which is where are our loves? What are our loves shaped by? What, what, what loves and desires do we find compelling and rich? And what are the loves that shape our life and course that we take? So let's jump into it here in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 9. 
the baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Last week, we kicked off this series in Mark, and we talked about John the Baptist and how he formed such an important bedrock for Jesus' ministry. And John the Baptist was the one who baptized people for the repentance of sins and for forgiveness. And how John's baptism was based on all of the Old Covenant, all the Old Testament way of relating to God, of endeavoring to do what is good and right based on our own strength and obedience to the law. And how John looks at that and sees that as meaningful but bereft of real power. And and verse 8 ends with John's uh, hopeful comment that while he baptizes with water, one who is coming after him will baptize us with the Spirit, who will give us the real authority uh, to follow God and to obey him. Into that, Jesus comes. Now, if you know about Jesus' early years, his birth in Bethlehem, his early childhood, fleeing to Egypt, all that, that comes from Matthew and Luke. That that doesn't come from Mark. All Mark tells us is that Jesus comes down and is baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, um, while that, uh, those early childhood years are significant and rich and we're talking about at Christmas time, we're going to follow Mark where he leads in this case and look at how uh, Jesus' baptism really sets the stage for his experience of ministry. So what happens when Jesus is baptized? Uh, This passage gives us an immediate immediate and beautiful picture of the Trinity at work. Look at verse 10 and, and notice the roles of the three persons of the Trinity. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. We mentioned last week that Mark is the first of the four Gospels to be written. It's maybe the first book in the New Testament to be written. It represents the very beginning and early teaching of the church. And at the very beginning of the Gospels, uh, we see the Trinity at work. That's true, the word Trinity is not in here. Trinity is a word that was uh, coined in the fourth century to to represent the, the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the three persons of God. But from the very beginning of the Gospels, we see the work of the Trinity, that the Father decrees over the Son his delight and love, and the Spirit is sent ministering to the Son. Um, Some theologians have described this as a dance of the three persons of the Trinity and their mutual affection and love for one another. Um, Now, there are some questions that come up in this passage. One of them is, so is this the, the first time the Spirit came on Jesus? Like, Again, if if you know Matthew and Luke, you know that John the Baptist is described as having the Spirit from his birth. We sing at Christmas time that Jesus was Lord at thy birth. Does Jesus just become the Messiah now at 30 years old? If all we had was Mark, we might be tempted in that direction. But the other Gospels point out that that when the baptism of Jesus happens, it's for our benefit. that, That we would see, and John the Baptist specifically would see, that as the Spirit comes down on the Son... It's so that we would recognize that this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Uh, By the way, I I find it really fascinating that the Spirit is depicted as a dove in this passage. Uh, There's a lot of times in in the Bible that God is depicted as in a simile, right? God is like a rock. God is like the wind. God is like a fire, right? Is God literally, you know, earth, wind, and fire? No. No, that's a metaphor. It's a simile. Um, And there's a lot of them in Scripture in this case, the spirit is described like a dove. I've got to be honest, fire seems cooler to me than a dove. Dove, kind of a weak bird. Uh, I like when God's at least an eagle. Uh, 
like in Isaiah 40, but um, we'll, we'll go with dove. Why dove? Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1. You know, at the very beginning of Genesis 1, it says the Spirit of God hovered, using sort of a, a bird-like word there, hovered over the waters of the deep. Right? The, the creation itself is, is shown to be made by the work of the Spirit. And now we have Jesus, who represents all that is good about the new creation, and the Spirit of God is with him as well. By the way, I, I don't know what to do with this, but in Acts uh, two, when the Spirit comes on believers, it uses a similar bird-like fluttering word, saying that flames like fire hover down on them. The idea that the, the Spirit comes like a fluttering bird is just a, a rich metaphor in Scripture. I'll let you sort of think through uh, what that might mean for you. Well, um, let's get back to the baptism here. What does the baptism of Jesus tell us about his identity? I, well, it tells us a lot, in verse 11 in particular when the voice from heaven specifically tells us about Jesus. It says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This phrase, beloved son, is going to mark Jesus throughout Mark's gospel. When uh, the voice from heaven speaks again at the transfiguration, that scene in Mark 9 where uh, Jesus and some of his closest uh, disciples go up on a mountain and God speaks to them there, he again refers to Jesus as his beloved son and that they are to listen to him. Jesus himself understood himself as the beloved son uh, at the end of Mark when he tells the parable of the vineyard and he talks about the beloved son who will be rejected and killed by wicked men. Now, why is this worth you and I thinking about? Um, Because this is going to shape how Jesus approaches his temptation, that he sees himself primarily as what the father says about him is true, that he is the beloved son of God. I kind of think that I should spend all 30 minutes just saying this phrase over and over and over again. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. If you and I took that in, that we rested in the love of God, how much would that shape your and my capacity to resist temptation? Now, this is the father speaking to Jesus himself, but According to the New Testament, if you and I believe in Jesus, then we are in Christ. We enjoy every spiritual blessing that Christ enjoys. By being in Christ, we have the same thing decreed about us that God decrees about Jesus. So to put simply, I believe that if God were here, he would speak over you with the same sort of delight and love. You are my beloved son or daughter. With you, I am well pleased. If that ESV translation doesn't hit your heart, let me give you a couple other translations. From the Contemporary English Bible, it says, You are my son whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. Could you hear God saying that about Jesus? Could you hear God saying that about you? In you he finds happiness. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. Can you imagine God delighting in you? You are my dearly loved son. This is the New Living Translation. And you bring me great joy. Can you see yourself bringing God great joy? For some of us, that feels too intimate. It feels too, too close, too, too, uh, uh, too tight in a way that, that we're not comfortable with, with God having that sort of emotive feeling about us. But that's what scripture says, that the father delights in the son. He takes great joy in the son. God is not uh, without emotion. He's not without cares. He's not without connection to Jesus. And he's not without those things towards you. God is not just an impartial judge or idealistic being who, who has no interest in the world. Rather, he is emotionally connected to you. Others of us read this passage, and it's really hard for us to see ourselves in that light. 
We're so wrecked with shame or with discouragement or guilt or feeling like we've missed out on something. Like, like maybe this is okay for, for the Father and Jesus and maybe, maybe the Father and some super Christians out there or maybe, maybe our spouse or our parents or other people that we think of as more spiritually advanced than we are. But we don't think of it for ourselves, that, that God would take delight in us. We think that when God sees us, all he sees is a disappointment or, or, or someone who missed the mark or, or someone who needs to try harder or do better. But the thing is, this is what he says about Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, then he says it about you. Now, let me just be really clear here. This is not uh, some sort of positive talk, uh, self-esteem workshop of like, God loves you no matter who you are, anywhere in the world, no matter what you've done, just because you're so awesome. Well, you may be awesome, but that's not, that's not the point of this, right? This is what the Father says about Jesus, and by extension, those who are in Christ by believing in him. This is not about what you, Paul, Joe, Kathy, Sue, whatever, not, not about what you bring, but about what Christ brings to the table. Uh, last thing in application. Um, this is very, very secondary, because this passage is about Jesus. But for those of you who are earthly fathers or mothers— I think we would be well off to listen to how the father speaks to his son and think about how we speak to our kids. Think about the delight that the father has in the son. Think of the encouragement that's in these words. Think of of the love vocalized that's behind this. And and isn't that a model for how we speak to our children? You are my beloved son. and you I find great joy. and you I take great delight. You you are my beloved daughter. I I love you and I, I enjoy being with you. You bring me a lot of happiness. We would do very well, uh, earthly parents and grandparents, to take delight in our kids in the same way. Now, now you might say, well, if my kid was like Jesus, I could take delight in them, but they're kind of a loser. <laughs> well, uh, one, stop being so judgy. And, uh, <laughs> and two, uh, look at the love that comes from the Father's heart and ask the question, of if, is that love taking root in your heart? as well. All right. Well, one of the values of Mark's brevity in his description of the baptism is that we get to look at these passages together, right? If we were just looking at the longer version of the baptism of Jesus in Matthew, we probably couldn't talk about how it relates to the temptation of Jesus. But since each are just a couple of verses, we get to look at them in one message today together. And, and look at verse 12 at how Mark links these two events. The Spirit has come down on Jesus at his baptism, and then it says the Spirit, or we could even paraphrase that, the same Spirit, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Mark's version of this baptism is a lot, uh, of the baptism and the temptation is a lot shorter than the other gospel writers. If you know about how Satan tempted Jesus, how Jesus responded, uh, any of that sort of stuff, what the temptations were, that, that's all from Matthew and Luke. All Mark tells us is that the temptation happened. So one of the values of the brevity of Mark is that we get to think about what the temptation means since we don't get so distracted by talking about how the temptation worked. Not that there's not value in talking about that. We'll talk about that when we teach through Matthew or Luke. But in this case, uh, we don't run the risk of making it about us. We can look at what Jesus' temptation meant. Mark's temptation focuses specifically on the fact that he went out into the wilderness and was in the wilderness 40 days. That, That word wilderness is repeated two times. So why does he go out into the wilderness? Now, as city people or suburban city people, 
uh, we would be inclined to read the word, word wilderness here through the lens of movies we've seen and think about, you know, old ox skulls and, uh, and tumbleweeds and uh, sort of the old west ghost towns and think, oh, that's a place of desolation where you wouldn't want to go. The problem is that's not actually what the New Testament talks about when it talks about the wilderness. If you look down just a little bit further in Mark 135, you'll see that the wilderness, or they're translated a desolate place, is where Jesus went to pray, where he chose to go. In Mark 145, when Jesus is getting crushed by the crowds and other people's expectation of him, he retreats to the wilderness, to the desolate places. In Mark 6, when um, Jesus wants to pull his disciples away to pray, he goes to the wilderness. So throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses the wilderness as a place to commune with God, not a place that is the devil's turf. Why does that matter? Uh, It matters because this is not Jesus going uh, for a temporary temptation into the place the devil owns, but rather the place that all belongs to his father and out of the father's love is able to withstand temptation. Just as an aside, you kind of know, a lot of you probably intuitively know the idea is true that the wilderness is a place to meet with God because you found that to be true. You've gone to camps or up on top of mountains, and, and those have been places where you've had really rich spiritual experiences in a way that is hard to do in the crush of Costco um, or other sort of urban environments. Um, Jesus goes into the wilderness, and when he's there, he withstands the temptations of the devil. He's the one who uh, is able to, to look at all the temptations that faced him and face us and stand up under them. This is really significant doctrinally, not just because you and I should resist temptation too, but because we come from a line of humanity that failed to resist temptation. Uh, all that's happening here in the, one of the things that's happening here in Jesus' resistance of temptation is he's succeeding where Adam failed. That's why this is so core to the beginning of the Gospels and why the, the temptation of Jesus comes up in all the synoptics is because Adam didn't do this, right? Adam didn't go into the wilderness, but into a garden. And while he was there uh, with the animals himself, he's the one who failed when the, when the enemy came to him and tempted him. Jesus represents the new Adam, the one who is able to succeed where the first Adam failed. He is with the wild animals, and he's in the wilderness, not in a garden. But the, the context is the same, right? That the enemy comes to him, tempts him, and yet Jesus, in communion with the Father, is able to withstand the full brunt of the temptations of the enemy. Uh, by the way, the animals thing is unique to Mark. He's the only gospel writer that mentions the wild animals. So I think it's worth just mentioning. Uh, what's, what's the deal with the animals? Uh, some people think like, oh, these are coyotes, or these are like this is like danger that Jesus is in the midst of. I, I actually think it's the opposite. I think it highlights that, that Jesus, like the first Adam before him, is the one who is here to live and reign over all of God's creation. He is the fulfillment of what Isaiah 11 talked about when the Messiah would come who would uh, rule over the animals. This is what I, Isaiah 11:6 says. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. That's not referring necessarily to, to just being a, a young child, but the fact that uh, they're going to be so docile under uh, the Messiah's reign that even a small child could hold the wolf back from doing damage. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's the fulfillment of the Messiah who's come, who's come to make the, the G3 garden that Tim talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, Okay, 
We, we got to talk about temptation for a second uh, because this is such an un-American concept. Uh, you guys are in a world where the idea that you would have desires that you don't act on is going to be seen with a lot of, by a lot of secular forces in our world as repressive or, at best, a, uh, a missing out on all the world offers. If you said, hey, I'm experiencing temptations and I, I'm trying not to act on them, a lot of our secular friends would say, oh, that's such a shame. You're missing out on all the pleasures of this world. B- best case scenario, they'd let you have a pass when it came to things that were like very egregiously evil, right? If you told them, I- I'm tempted to, I don't know, do something really heinous, maybe they would say, well, yeah, you, you're weird for having those desires. But for the most part, if you said, hey, I'm, I'm being tempted, they would say, well, just eat the chocolate, right? Just, just, just have the affair, right? Just, just act on whatever desires you have, right? Life is short. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. So, so the idea that we're going to talk about temptation for these next few minutes, that you and I would have desires that we should not act on, is a very countercultural idea. On top of that, there's a very interesting theological question here of, so wait, there were things that Jesus was tempted by that were wicked? How is, how is, that, how is that possible, right? What does that say about Jesus' nature and about what it means that he was sinless? Now, some of us hear temptation, or when we experience temptation, we immediately uh, have habituated giving into it. Or we experience temptation is so shameful that we haven't separated temptation from sin at all. So the first thing we have to do is make this separation, right? That temptation is not sin. Temptation can come, according to the scripture, from either our sinful nature, sometimes called the flesh, or it can come from the world, that is other people, uh, or other structures in the world, or it can come from the devil. In this passage, it comes from the devil. But temptation can come from one of those three sources, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's sin. As Martin Luther famously said, uh, we cannot control the birds flying over us in the sky, but we can control whether they make a roost in our hair. Um, You and I can't control whether we'll experience temptation, but we can control what we'll do with it. And Jesus' temptation tells us something about his human nature. He was meaningfully tempted, but yet did not sin. That's what Hebrews 4 tells us. For we do not have a high priest, speaking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus' temptation shows us that you and I don't have to act on every desire or impulse that we have. And let's be honest, if we did, uh, the world isn't ready for the amount of sin that we would unleash, right? If, if I knew all the thoughts that you have had in the last year, all the temptations you've experienced, all the idle speculations, I would be aghast until you saw all the things, thoughts, and desires I had over the last year, right? Gosh, last year, last week, last month, right? One trip to Costco. Um, <laughs> you know, I got cut off a lot. It's not my fault. All right, no, sorry. All right, uh, no. Jesus' temptation tells us uh, something significant about what it means to walk with God, though, as well. Uh, I think, and if I, if, I, if I don't get across anything else in this message, I really want you to hear this. Jesus' baptism prepared him for his experience of temptation. The father's declaration over him that he is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased was the fuel to prepare Jesus for his temptations. Because the father decreed over him that he had the love of the eternal God, that that he was a beloved son, that prepared him for every temptation offered to him by the devil in the wilderness. 
If you are experiencing temptation that feels overwhelming, it feels like it's crushing in on you, it's, it's articulating your loves in a way that you find, how could I ever not give into this? Then the answer is not greater willpower, greater struggle, greater self-denial on their own, but it's to run to the love of God that is expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what enables us to withstand temptation. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians when he says, none of you are tempted beyond what you can bear, but he gives you a way out from under it. He's talking about running to the God who loves you. You and I find our way out of temptation, not by repression, but by the love of the Father himself. That's the model of Jesus, and that's the hope that we have in this world. Jesus' temptation can shape our experience and source and response to temptation as well. All right, last part of this, uh, and, and uh, we'll see this in verse 14, and I, I want you to see the connection of this last part as well. As Jesus has experienced the love of the Father, resisted temptation, he now goes in that same heart of love towards us. He says in verse 14, uh, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus uh, has experienced the love of the Father, the approval of the Father, the delight of the Father. He's withstood the temptations of the devil. He's the new Adam. And he's inviting people into the kingdom. Right? Not a kingdom of harshness or of cruelty or of... Um, of trying to get people to, to do better on their own, but the same sort of delightful love that the Father has for him, he invites us into as well. The kingdom of God is at hand. The, the same thing you've seen the Father at work with the Son is what he invites us into as well, to repent and to believe in the gospel. As the great hymn, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus says, turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Mark summarizes Jesus' proclamation of the gospel here as repent and believe. Repent and believe. Don't choose to give in to temptation, right? Thinking that we will find our meaning and identity in the things of this world. Instead, look to the God who loves you, who has created you in his image, who desires for you to live in relationship with him. And look at the way that your sin has, has made a mess of our world and of your life. How our choice to rebel against God, to, to do the things he said not to do, and to, to refrain from doing the things he said to do, has not made us more whole, but it's made us more anxious, more desperate, more lonely, more at odds with one another and with him. Uh, to see the way it has separated us from a holy God and say, I, I don't want to live that way. Instead, I want to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, as we respond to him, as we choose him in, in that proclamation of the gospel, we find that the Father's delight in the Son is available to us as well. Well, what I want you to do as we close this message, a um, couple things. First off, um, I would love for you to take that passage from Mark 1.11 and spend some time meditating over it, uh, praying about it. Um, you might do what I did. You can just search on Bible Gateway or just in Google Mark 1.11 and look at all the different English translations. Um, you can find them really easily online. And just read over them this week and ask the question, if the Father delights in Jesus this way, and if I'm in Christ, if I'm a Christian, 
do I really believe he delights in me this way? I, I, really, I really believe that if you and I internalize the love of God more greatly, you and I will resist temptation more freely. So, so I'd encourage you to do that. Spend some time resting in that verse, thinking about that verse, meditating on that verse. So that's the first thing. Secondly, Jesus called for us to repent and believe the gospel. Are there areas of temptation that you've habituated so much that they don't even feel like temptation anymore? They just feel like automatic response. <laughs> they just feel like a, a knee-jerk thing you do when the inclination arises. And, and, and can you separate, in your mind at least, with God, temptation from sin? And just say, God, just because I want to do this doesn't mean I need to. Uh, whatever need it's meeting, you meet in Christ more fully. Right? Are, there, are there repentance and acts of temptation that you need to separate from your response this week before God. Chris led us in singing that great Christmas hymn uh, before the sermon, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. I think it really summarizes this passage beautifully. I'm gonna read it for us as we close here, or at least one of the verses. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let our find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation Hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. That's what God is for you. That's what God is, that's what God is for Jesus. That's what God can be for you and me as well. Right? May we never find our desires met in a Costco or in a temptation or in the things of this world when we can find them met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we celebrate uh, the coming of your son this time of year, and it is a helpful reminder that our lo longings and desires will never be fulfilled apart from him. God, I'm, I'm grateful for Costco. I'm grateful for Christmas. I'm grateful for all the delightful things of this world. Um, but we, may you turn our eyes upward at least this morning. May you at least turn us towards you in this moment of worship, and may we realize that the things of this earth do grow strangely dim when we look at you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.